if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with. Let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 12. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to, Mark chapter 12. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in our other locations around Metro DC, as well as others who are online, maybe traveling or sick and not able to be with us in person today. It's good to be together as one church around God's word. I should add, I'm actually a bit under the weather, so I'm, I'm using this microphone just in case that sudden cough comes on and it doesn't reverberate in this room and into other locations. So please bear with me if it sounds like I'm coughing up a lung up here, I'm okay. And before we dive into this text today, I, I wanna thank you, church family, for the major step you took last week, first and foremost in welcoming 53 new members into our church family. Praise God for the people he's entrusting to our church. And then I thank God for how you affirmed an amended constitution that helps us take a major step toward more biblical health as a church. And so yes, I praise God for that. And I, I wanna encourage you, so flowing from that, and one, if you're not a member of NBC, but you come regularly to NBC, to commit to meaningful membership as part of this body. You can do that at any of our locations. And then those of you who are members, I wanna encourage you to work with leaders at your location to experience meaningful membership as part of the body of Christ, specifically to get connected to a church group that's caring for you like family and helping you grow in Christ. And you're making disciples together in our city and in the world on mission. God has called and created every one of us to be a meaningful part of a local church, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ, this unique community, unlike anywhere else in this world. I've described it as a heavenly colony on earth that's intended to show the world what the life and the love of Jesus looks like in action. So don't settle for casual church attendance. You are made for so much more than that and you will miss out on God's design for your life if you are disconnected from a local church and meaningful membership in it. So, all right, on to our text today. And as I'm speaking here at Tyson's right now, we're taking up an offering in this room, and different locations do this at different times. Some of you might be taken up now as well. It's a pretty routine part of our worship. One that, if we're not careful, we can hardly notice. As someone passes something to us, and we just kind of pass it on to the next person, almost mindlessly. For some of us, we don't think about it because we don't really give much at all. Maybe we throw in some money here or there or maybe not at all. And for others of us, we kind of mindlessly pass it because we give in other ways at other times. Maybe we have direct deposits set up or some other automatic means of giving. So it's not actually something we do when we're gathered together for worship. Regardless, if we're not careful, we can hardly think about giving in our lives or in our worship. And I want to show you today that this is not good for us. And it's not 
glorifying to God. We're about to look at a passage where Jesus watches people giving. He watches what they give and how they give. And if nothing else, this passage is going to show us that Jesus is watching what we give and how we give. And he's watching us not like a heavenly policeman who's making sure we do things right. He's watching us because he loves us and he wants the best for us. We saw last fall when we walked through 12 traits of a biblical church that God has actually designed our hearts to be glad in giving, not in getting. We saw how for followers of Jesus, intentional, generous, cheerful, sacrificial giving is life-giving. And we're missing out on life if we're not giving like that. And let's just be honest with each other. This goes totally against the grain of the way we think in this world. So what I want to do today is show us in Mark 12 a contrast between what I'll call worldly giving and godly giving. In other words, there are ways to give that align with the ways of this world. And there's a way to give that aligns with the word of God. And I just want to encourage you to ask the question, which one of these marks your life? And I should just add, for those of us, for those of you who are visiting with us today or exploring Christianity, one, we are really, genuinely, sincerely glad that you are here. And I fully realize that some of, one of the reasons people often have a negative view of the church is because some people think all they talk about is giving. And today is not going to be helpful for that conception in your mind. You might walk away saying, I knew it. You're not even thinking it right now. It's true. I knew it. It just proves it. But before you draw that conclusion, I want to ask you to hang with me. Because I want to show you that this text is not ultimately about giving. It's ultimately about Jesus and how he changes our lives for our good from the inside out in a way that leads us to live and love and give in ways that are totally different from this world. And we hope, I have prayed specifically for you that God would use this time today in his word over the next few minutes to show you, maybe for the first time, the depth of his love for you in a way that is life-changing in a way that turns everything upside down and frees you from what this world says is best for you and even what you might think is best for you to what God says and God thinks, the God who made you and the God who knows what is best for you and loves you. So let's start by hearing directly from his word. So we'll begin by reading the last part of what we read, if you were here last week, in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up here on the screen. God's word says, And in his teaching, he said, he being Jesus, Beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So you see the contrast, right? It's pretty obvious between these scribes in verse 38, the leaders in the religious life of God's people, the overseers of this religious system, and then many rich people who gave large sums of money to the treasury. So you've got that picture, and then you have a poor widow who put in two small copper coins, basically the smallest amount of money anybody could give, a penny. Yet Jesus is watching all of this. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this woman has put in more than everybody else who's giving here. In other words, Jesus saw something that nobody else saw, which means there's a different way to think about giving than the way the world thinks about giving. And not just the world out there, but the religious world. I think we're about to see Part of what we need to see is how worldly giving creeps into and often characterizes our giving even in the church. So let's think about the contrasts here. You might write them down, five of them. Contrast number one, worldly giving is motivated by pride while godly giving is motivated by humility. So the picture of these scribes in verses 38 through 40 is clearly a picture of pride. Their motive in practicing religion was their own pride. So is that possible? In our giving for our motive to actually be pride? I think there's many ways that's possible. Think about it. One, we, we can give to things in this world that exalt ourselves over God. Maybe think about the earliest example of this in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. Can you imagine the fundraising campaign for that? Give your bricks and mortar. We're going to build a monument to ourselves. And people gave generously and sacrificially, and it was built. And thousands of years later, today, there are all sorts of people, institutions, and organizations that you can give to that have as their aim the exaltation of all we can do with no regard for God. Maybe even with active 
disregard for God. Surely that's pride. But then think about the part that pride can play even in giving to the church or to Christian ministries. These scribes were proud of their robes and long prayers and many rich people were proud of the large sums they could give. And even if they didn't say it to others, they could easily think to themselves, look at all I'm giving. God must be glad that I'm a giver in a way that led to pride in how they gave. When the reality is, the only reason they were able to give is because of the grace of God in their lives. And the same is true for each of us. It's not like ultimately they earned or we earn money for ourselves and then decide if we're going to give it to God. No, that's prideful at the core. Humility realizes it already belongs to God. We read this this week, Psalm 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. Humility says all that's in the world belongs to God, including my money. The only reason I have it is because he's given it to me. So all my money comes from God. It all belongs to God. Only reason I have it is because he's been generous to me. Now, as soon as I say that, some people immediately think, wait a minute. I work hard for my money. I spent years getting education and experience for my job. I get up early every morning. I work hard all day. I work hard for my money. And I don't doubt that for a second. But let me ask you a question. Where do you get the energy to work hard? Who gives you breath every morning that you wake up? Who gave you a mind to learn and grow and think? Who gives you the ability to process and make business decisions all day? Who gives you a body to work, a mouth to speak, ears to hear, eyes to see? It is sinful pride and utter foolishness to think that you are ultimately behind all that you have. Everything good you have is evidence of the grace of God toward you. It is not a coincidence that our church's Bible reading this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read these words, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. God is speaking that over us today in an unmistakable way. Now put this together. This is why pride has no place in godly giving. Because our giving in and of itself, is a picture of his grace. I've used the illustration before of times when my children have given gifts to me for my birthday or Father's Day or Christmas using my money to buy the gift. So did they actually give me a gift? 
Well, yes. And they're sitting over here like it genuinely came from their heart. But no, it came from my wallet. <laughs> and so with us. Everything good we have comes from God. So why would any of us, even in our own minds, want any credit for giving money when our money ultimately belongs to God and comes from God? And keep going. Don't miss this. Because in our pride, we can actually start to convince ourselves that God needs us to give to him. In our pride, we can actually take the God upon whom we are totally dependent for everything we have, and we can convince ourselves that he is dependent on us. Many Christian appeals for giving, church appeals for giving are based on this, almost making God out to be like a beggar. Oh, man, woman, brother, sister in Christ, don't be deceived. God does not need you. We don't give because God needs our help. He's the Almighty. We give out of the overflow of God's help for us. And while we're here, one more subtle way that pride creeps into our giving. I think about the way Christians sometimes talk about giving. And even churches, pastors appeal for giving. Like, look at all Jesus has done for you. The least you could do is give to him. You owe him that. And I want to encourage you to never think like that. Don't ever think like that. And here's why, Christian. Because you don't owe Jesus anything. You don't owe Jesus your money, your time, or anything else. The Christian life is not about Jesus giving his life for you then you paying him back with your money or whatever else? No. Actually, this is the whole point of Christianity, of the gospel. Because as soon as you try to pay Jesus back for all he has done for you, you are undercutting the very foundation of grace that saved you in the first place. It's not grace if you pay it back. And Jesus hasn't called us to pay him back. It's the whole point of grace. We can't pay Jesus for what he's done for us. Jesus is not a businessman looking to do a business deal with us. And then, this is so important, because in so many Christians' lives, we've almost conditioned ourselves to think about all that Jesus did for us in the past on the cross, so then what can we do for him now? We get into this sick religious mode of thinking that our church attendance or Bible reading or Praying or giving here or there are somehow going to pay Jesus like we pay our mortgage every month. When that misses the whole point too. Thinking that in light of all Jesus has given for us, now we give to him. Misses the whole point because the reality is Jesus has not stopped giving to us. Christian, Jesus didn't just give his life for you in the past. He's giving you life right now. So we just talked about. Every good thing in your life at this moment is because Jesus, by his grace, is giving it to you. There is nothing good in you apart from the grace of God in Jesus, which means that anything good you do today is the work of Jesus in you today. 
You want to know why Jesus is not a businessman looking to do a business deal with you? Because you don't have anything to offer. <laughs> you bring sin to the table. That's your contribution. Everything good you have comes from him. So put aside, put aside all the pride, even the subtle pride in your life and your giving and live and give out of the overflow of humility before God. Is that not the picture we see in this widow? A poor widow humbly walking up, knowing that even the penny she has is a picture of God's grace in her life. And she gives it humbly. And you've got to get the picture here. The scene is the temple treasury, the temple court, where there were 13 shofar chests. Think trumpet-like receptacles that were set out for people to drop their offerings in. And people would walk up and give their offerings and every coin they dropped could be heard. And the more you gave, the more noise you made. And the more noise you made, the more attention you drew to yourself. So here's another contrast. Worldly giving wants to be seen while godly giving, giving wants to be behind the scenes. In contrast to these scribes and many rich people, this poor widow, well, she doesn't know Jesus is watching her. She doesn't want anyone to watch her. She just wants to give and get out of there, which is how Jesus taught us to give. Don't give to be seen, recognized, rewarded by others. And think about how we can miss this one especially in a day where churches and Christian ministries actually work against this. So often, churches and Christian ministries go out of their way to give extra honor to the people who give the most. We name buildings or initiatives after givers. We give plaques or create memorials to honor givers. When Jesus has specifically warned us, Matthew chapter 6, when you give, don't make any noise about it. That's what hypocrites do. They like the praise of men. They're living for praise in this world, not you. When you give, do it in secret. Like your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. Worldly giving wants to be seen. Giving that glorifies God is content with God alone seeing the giving while you stay behind the scenes. Which leads to a third contrast here. Worldly giving desires power over others, while godly giving demonstrates trust in God. You just jump to the end of this passage, you see this phrase, this poor widow put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And this is a tough one when you really think about it. Let's just play the role of this woman's financial counselor for a minute. So imagine her husband died years ago. She comes to you and said, I'm says, I'm down to my last $2. I have nothing else. Nothing else. This is all I have to live on. But I believe God wants me to put it in the offering. What do you think? 
how would we respond? What would we tell her? I think we'd probably say, well, that is really generous of you. It says so much about your heart. But God also gives us wisdom, common sense. God knows your heart. He knows you want to give. But he also tells you to take care of yourself. So I'm sure God would have you keep these coins and buy food for tomorrow. He wants to meet your needs. Where is God going to provide you food from? He's not just going to send it down from heaven. God wants you to be wise. Feed yourself. I think that's what we'd say. Even based on some other biblical principles. But Jesus didn't question her wisdom at all. Instead, he gave her an unqualified commendation. In fact, he set her up as a model for our giving. Why? Because godly giving demonstrates trust in God. And the contrast here is with world, worldly giving that desires power over others. Do you remember what Jesus said about these scribes right before this in verse 40? They devour widows' houses. We mentioned last week, we're not sure exactly what that means practically, but clearly it wasn't good. And this is a major part of the story that we cannot miss because Jesus is giving here a stinging rebuke to a religious system that was supposed to care for widows, but was leaving them in poverty. God said all throughout his word to care for widows, for orphans, for sojourners. And instead of God's people in the temple giving and then using that which was given for the sake of widows, orphans, sojourners, women like this poor widow, they were ignoring them. And she was down to no money to her name. So church, let us make sure that in our giving, we are prioritizing what God says to prioritize. Care for those in need. For widows in need of support. For children in need of homes. For refugees in need of help. The list goes on for people in our city and around the world with urgent spiritual and physical needs. And as a side note, when it comes to worldly giving that desires power over others, I can't help but think about the dangerous tendency, even or especially in the church, to actually give power to the people who give most. I have seen people give large sums in the church and then expect power. And if or when they don't get that power, they threaten to take their gifts elsewhere. So be it. Political lust for power has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, especially if it's tied to money. God specifically and sternly warns James 2 about giving any preferential treatment to the wealthy. And Acts chapter 8 verse 20 makes clear, you cannot buy spiritual power with material wealth. Yeah. 
Worldly giving desires power over others. Godly giving demonstrates trust in God. Which then leads to, okay, so the fourth contrast, worldly giving is comfortable and convenient. While godly giving is sacrificial and costly. Just think about the contrast here. Rich people giving large sums that did not involve sacrifice. They were comfortable and convenient. And Jesus says, this woman put in more than all of them. Why? Because they had contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This poor widow, an actual amount, gave far less than everyone else. But in proportion to what she had, she gave far more. But this is not how we normally think about our giving or others' giving. We think the bigger the better. We see someone give a big amount and we think, oh, that's particularly generous, maybe even sacrificial. We give less and we think, oh, I'm just, I'm not able to do as much as others. When the reality is one person can give $25 in an act of great sacrifice, while another person can give a million dollars and not sacrifice at all. If someone makes $10 million a year and gives away $9 million and spends a mere million on themselves, we may be impressed, but is this giving like God calls us to give? There's a significant difference between comfortable giving and sacrificial giving, and God calls us to do the latter. This is all over the Bible. Think 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God is talking about the impoverished churches in Macedonia, who when they heard that the church in Jerusalem was in the middle of famine, they gave generously. God says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. What a picture. They gave themselves first and foremost to the Lord, and that led them to give beyond their means in a way that was hard to give. But they didn't do it begrudgingly. Did you see this? They did it one of their own accord. They weren't forced to do that. And they were begging us earnestly for the privilege of giving to starving saints in Jerusalem. This is Christian giving. It's a supernatural overflow of a life surrendered to the Lord. So just ask the question, is our giving, is your giving, is my giving comfortable and convenient or sacrificial and costly? Maybe another way to put it, based on that language in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, are you giving less than your ability, according to your ability, or beyond your ability? So less than your ability, meaning you could easily give more. I think 
the large majority of American Christians are right here. According to your ability, giving in a way that's truly commensurate with what God has given you, proportionate to what God has given you. And beyond your ability means giving to the point of sacrifice, which certainly seems to be what God is calling us to. Mark 12, 2 Corinthians 8, and a host of other places. So what should this look like in our lives? I've always appreciated what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. What would it look like if you decided to leave behind comfortable and convenient giving for sacrificial and costly giving? Not because you have to, but because you want to. Again, as the overflow of God's grace in you, towards you, through you. This is why right after the passage we read about, these Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see in verse 9 of that same chapter, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is why I said in the beginning, to those of you who may be visiting with us or exploring Christianity, this is what this is ultimately about. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ. Giving like this is the overflow of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. What does that mean? This is the greatest news in all the world. God has come to us, has left his throne in glory. He came to us in the person of Jesus. He became poor. He became like us. He lived among us. And then he died for us. He was killed by us. Why? He came to save us from our sins, from all the ways that we have all turned from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. He's paid the price for our sins. Why? So that you, by his poverty, by him doing that, might become rich. You might say, that means through Jesus I can have a lot of money? No. You can have something so much better than all the money in this world. You can have your sins totally forgiven, and you can be restored to relationship with God for eternal life for the next 10 trillion years and beyond. That's what it means to be rich. So we invite you, if you've never received the grace of Jesus in your life, to do so today, to hear God speaking to your heart right now by his spirit saying to you that he loves you so much. 
He's brought you here to hear this news. He loves you. The God who made you loves you. And he's made a way for you to be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with him to experience eternal life now and forever with him. We invite you to put your faith in Jesus. And when you do, and for all who have, then you now have a new heart that wants to give your all to God. And you will give generously and sacrificially. And in a weird way, you'll do it cheerfully. Again, not because you're paying Jesus back, but because Jesus is now your life. And you live and you give to spread this good news of God's love to the ends of the earth. I think about an email I received one time from a friend of mine living among the unreached in the world, people who've never heard the gospel. He wrote, how many people have not believed because they have not heard? What will it take for those people to hear? Have they not heard because there's no one to tell them? What can we do in obedience to God to change a world in which there are billions of people who cannot call on the name of the Lord because they haven't believed and who haven't believed because there is no one to tell them? Most of us would say we know the answer to that question, but the truth is there will continue to be billions of people who do not hear as long as we continue to use spare time and spare money to reach them. These are two radically different questions. What can we spare and what will it take? I think that's a good question. What would happen if we stopped asking how much we could spare to spread the gospel in the world and we started asking how much it was going to take? And obviously, we don't assume that any one of us can single-handedly give enough to make that happen. But I can't help but to wonder, what if God actually wanted to reach the world with the good news of his love in Jesus? What might we expect him to put in the hands of his church? Maybe unprecedented wealth in the history of the world. That's what he's given us. So the church in the world today, all the wealth that is needed to reach all the nations with the gospel is in the church right now. The question is, are we gonna coast through Christian lives marked by worldly giving that is comfortable and convenient? Or are we gonna leave behind the ways of this world and give our lives to godly giving that is sacrificial and costly. Which leads to the last contrast. Worldly giving bears fruit for a while, but godly giving bears fruit forever. You just think about it. Obviously, there are many people and places in the world that will ask you and me to give to things, even good things, that will last for a time. But what does it look like to give to that which will last forever? 
may it not be lost on us today that we're sitting here 2,000 years after this scene in Mark 12. And we're talking about two small copper coins, a penny that a poor widow put in a coffer. And we're going to get there in a few weeks. Makes me think about a story to come in Mark chapter 14. Or another woman who has more breaks an expensive alabaster flask and anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus says in Mark 14 verse 9, just to give you a preview, truly I say to you, same word, words he used to preface what he said about the widow in Mark 12. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now these two stories, these two women in Mark 12 and 14 are powerful pictures of what God does through godly giving. Small amounts, large amounts. How God uses godly gifts to resound to his glory, the good of many others in the world, and the good of the giver in ways far beyond what we could fathom. Why would we settle for anything less than that? Don't you want your life to bear fruit that lasts? Don't you want your life to count in a way that resounds to God's glory and the good of many others and your own good forever? That sounds like a wise investment. So don't settle any more for worldly giving and even supposedly Christian versions of worldly giving. Give in the way God has designed you to give and trust God to take your giving to bring about fruit that doesn't fade this year or next year or 10 years from now or 100 years from now. Trust God to take your giving and bring about fruit that will still be there 10 trillion years from now. This is the kind of life, lift your eyes. This is the kind of giving you are made for. So I want to invite you to take a moment and to reflect on all of this in your life before God. I'm going to put up here on the screen all five of these contrasts. And I want to invite you to consider how is God calling you to leave behind worldly giving and experience godly giving? In what ways specifically is God, by His Spirit right now, calling you to respond to what we've seen in His Word today? So let's spend a moment just praying, reflecting along these lines, and then I and other pastors at other locations will lead us after that. God, we pray for a spirit of humility right now to hear from you and how you are leading us, each of us, to leave behind worldly giving and to experience the life you've called us to.
in godly giving. Speak to us right now, we pray, and help us to hear and obey. God, we pray that by the power of your word and your spirit, you would transform our minds in the way we think about giving. We need you to transform our desires. We want to give in the way we've just seen in your word. That you would transform our actions. You would, by your grace, help us to follow through on what you're saying to us right now. God, we want our lives to be marked by godly giving to reflect what you commended in this poor widow, especially, God, in a culture where we, we do have much, so much in this world. God, we pray you would transform our hearts and lives to reflect this countercultural way of living and giving. And as we pray, I would just ask all across this room, have you put your faith in Jesus and God's love for you? Have you been restored to relationship with God through what he has done for you? He's speaking to your heart right now. If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you just to pray where you're sitting, just between you and God to say, God, I want to be restored to relationship with you. God, I am coming to you. I know I've sinned against you. I've turned from your ways to my own ways. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins, to pay the price for my sins. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and the grave. And today I trust in Jesus as the Savior of my sins and the Lord of my life. I want to experience life the way you've created me to live. I want to leave behind my ways, the ways of this world. I want to live according to your ways your life in me. When you say that to God, by faith in his grace, not about anything you do, 
This is part of the good news. It's by trusting in his love for you that God says, I forgive you of all your sin and I restore you in a relationship with me that last forever. God, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for this good news. We praise you for how even people today in this room and watching online or placing their faith in you, Jesus, for the first time. Pray that they would feel in a palpable way the riches that have just taken place, that they have experienced now, that they will experience forever in relationship with you. And God, I pray for them and for all of us who have these riches in you. Help us, we pray, to live out what you have spoken to us today. By your grace in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people who agree with that prayer, say amen.